Hi, I'm Jason Sachs. Welcome to Classic Comics Cavalcade. Today I'm joined by Eric Hoffman and Nick Hanover for part three of our conversation about the comics of Steve Gerber. This time we discuss one of his most unique creations, Hard Time, published by DC, his revival of Howard the Duck, and his two-part Superman Elseworlds story from early 2000s. Um, enjoy about an hour of conversation about the brilliance of Gerber's work, including um, a deep analysis of Hard Time, which um, we all agree is one of our favorite works, as well as a list of our personal top three Gerber classics. I think it's a good listen. Hope you enjoy it. And uh, it starts right after this ad. So welcome to Classic Comics Cavalcade. I am Jason Sachs. I'm Nick Hanover. And I'm Eric Hoffman. And welcome to the third of our trilogy discussing the comics art of, or comics writing, I should say, of the great Steve Gerber. This time we're going to talk about some of his late 90s and 2000s work, including uh, the Howard the Duck revival and Hard Time. Hopefully we'll have a chance to talk about some of his other work, including um, his pair of um, kind of unknown Superman comics. But I got to start with the comic that I think is maybe the most unique in his entire uh, set of work. And also maybe the most one of the more unique comics ever published, which is Hard Time. Yes. Um, coming back and rereading it uh, just recently, I was struck just by how unique it is compared to anything else that's ever been published in comics and how um, the comic, I can see why the comic didn't sell, but how kind of challenging it was as a reader to find a place to kind of anchor yourself. Uh, if you haven't read it, it takes place. Uh, the main character is named Ethan Harrow and he's part of a Columbine like school shooting. He gets sent to prison for 50 years and, um, it's about the complications that he encounters in his life in prison. As part of it, he's inhabited by uh, what we find out is a um, Asian demon, Kishara, I believe is how you say it, um, which both protects him and is kind of a curse for him. Um, mm -hmm. Ethan comes across as this multifaceted character, but not especially likable. And even when we learn his backstory, we don't uh, like him that much. Um, the vast majority of the comic takes place in prison, which is very challenging and unique. And I don't know, uh, I, why don't I leave it there and ask what you guys take on it was. Really interesting. I, I'd read this when it came out and I hadn't revisited it, it since. Um, and I was surprised at how well it holds up. Uh, I feel like it would probably do better now because I, I feel like there's similar types of stories being done at Image that have been decently popular. And it also kind of like uh, the approach and the style of it fits in with like some of the prestige like cable stuff that goes on now. Like I feel like this would do very well as like a Netflix series. Mm -hmm. <laughs> yeah, it would definitely make a great uh, Netflix series, I think. Um, it definitely has, yeah. It definitely, it definitely seems to be uh, akin to what was that? Um, 
a prison show that was incredibly popular for a while. Oz. Oz, yes. Was this published at the same time Oz was on television? Because I kind of feel like it was contemporary with it. Yeah, I think this would have been almost towards the middle of Oz. Because I want to say that Oz began in like 98 or 99, maybe 2000. And this is like 2004, right? Oz ran yeah. 97 through 2003. Right, okay. So it would have been right after the end of it. I think uh, Gerber may have been <laughs> may have been influenced by Oz a bit. <laughs> series. Yeah, because even Definitely. the like color effects in it are like Oz, where it's that super saturated, like kind of uh, washed out look, which was how that show was shot too, and a lot of other like prestige shows at that time. Right. And it right. fits it's, the story so well. Uh, yeah, it's. Go ahead. Well, it's I, I to me I think hard time is for me represents the best of what Gerber has to offer, and among his late works, I think it's really the best, the last best thing that he did uh, in his career. I mean, some of it's a little on the nose and maybe a little obvious as Gerber tends to be sometimes. Uh, but for the most part, it's a very fascinating, very immersive series. And you definitely get a sense that the characters are extremely three-dimensional. They all have a backstory. They're all you know, uh, convincing characters, they're believable. I mean, that's one of the great things I've said before about Steve Gerber is that even his supporting characters are incredibly well-drawn and interesting. I mean, the one that really stands out for me in the series is uh, Cindy Crane, the transgender woman. And that is definitely, I think, ahead of its time. I, I don't think in the late 90s, transgender uh, sexual politics was as to the forefront as it is nowadays. It's definitely about probably 10 years ahead of its time in that sense. Yeah, I mean, like, the only uh, thing around that time that I think would have been in mass media would have been, like, uh, Hedwig and Angry Inch. Right. Yeah. And Gerber's so uh, empathetic towards Cindy. Uh, he right. really presents her, her in uh, three dimensions as this character who's really just trying to get by in prison. When he tells us her story in the last few issues of volume two, um, it just strikes very true. Yeah, excellent. Those those couple of issues in season two are amazing. Uh, really, also, really, really compelling storytelling and, and very uh, believable and convincing. And, uh, she's one of the more sympathetic and likable characters in the series. Um, and I, I definitely think that, you know, even some of the, uh, you know, I've said it before, but Gerber is a humanist, uh, in his writing and, uh, the characters, you know, it's a prison setting. So there's plenty of opportunity to present the less than, you know, uh, wonderful aspects of human nature. And he does that well, but he also manages to get across that the people who are in prison are people and they have, you know, good things about them and bad things about them. Like you mentioned 
Ethan Harrow, he's not exactly uh, the greatest person that's ever walked. I mean, you know, he's he's the protagonist, so he does have to be somewhat sympathetic. But I do believe Gerber portrays him in a way that's not one-dimensional, and you know, he does end up in prison uh, because of a, a mistake, essentially. Uh, it was a prank that went bad, and you know, so you do feel for him in that sense that he's been uh, wrongly in prison. But at the same time, the things that he does aren't always the most defensible things that we can do. Uh, there's, you know, Gerber is basically what he seems to be doing with this series is showing that prison compromises you and that, you know, it, it brings out the worst and the best aspects of human nature. And uh, with the character Cindy, for example, I think she's this uh, literary grace or the ability to overcome the situation would be an intolerable situation. And she manages to carry herself through it uh, in, in such a way that she almost comes across the hero of the story in a lot of you're, you had a little bit of self fuzziness. Can you say the last bit again? Well, she she comes through the series in, in, as one of the strongest characters, and she sort of comes out of it as being uh, almost like the hero of, of the story in a lot of ways. Yeah, and I think to go back to the point you're making about Ethan not necessarily being likable, I I think the through line this has with like a lot of Gerber work is that Gerber um, has this wide distrust of media and also of the justice system. And it Mm -hmm. comes through in different ways, but it felt like one of the main points being made here was that, you know, society and the media want to establish very clear good guys and bad guys in situations rather than having complexity with it. And like what Ethan did was unquestionably wrong but the response to his crime is also wrong. He's essentially made to pay for all the things that happened uh, because it's just much simpler to just have, you know, the scapegoat for everything. Even if he wasn't the one who committed any murders, he wasn't the one who ever actually pulled the trigger. Um, the only person he killed was uh, his friend that he, like, basically shot with, like, a, <laughs> I don't know how to, frame that but like basically a demonic energy that like takes him out before he can shoot an innocent person um but i thought that that was like it it fits in with the gerber themes that way and that it's like basically here's this person and if you believe in actual justice you have to believe that like just because you don't like someone or just because some of what they did was wrong doesn't necessarily mean that the entire weight of the justice system should come down on them just because there's no one else to take responsibility for the far more worse things that happen. I feel like in a lot of ways, Ethan's a victim of two things. One is his own kind of overreaction to the abuse he took, but also he's a victim Mm -hmm. of the system because, um, you know, there's the, Gerber does it in, um, especially in issue six of volume of uh, season two, where Julius and Truth Rosenberg 
work to create the documentary about him, which then distorts the story such that he's not just he's not this evil guy who's um, out to kill other students and is essentially victimized because someone's running for re-election. Now he's uh, the innocent victim who is going to help these people build up their reputation. Yeah, and I, I mean, the, the two of you, you were, like Jason, you were already a parent when Columbine happened, right? Yeah. Yeah, like I was, I was in, in, I guess probably eighth or ninth grade when that happened. And I remember the reactions to that, um, it, it really did feel like if you looked a certain way and if you listened to a certain type of music, or even if you hung out with certain people that fit that mold, um, there was this like hatred that would go on uh, because like society couldn't handle that it was a far more complicated issue where like the shooters themselves were also victims because it's possible to be a victim and also be you know a perpetrator and there was all the stuff going around with the gun rights that no one wanted to to look at which then obviously only got worse as time continued um but i remember being in school in that point and like you know like having to have like an uncomfortable conversation with my parents about you know some of my friends or like their concerns that because i hung out with people that dyed their hair black or like wore trench coats that you know they were going to try the same thing and um it was a very uncomfortable time because it, it i think depending on how your personality was like i could easily see people who didn't have rage before become enraged because they were being treated as criminals without having done anything and being looked at as other and i think that for a lot of people my age that was like one of the first moments of radicalization because you realize that you can be completely innocent and not have done something, but the media has created this idea of what a school shooter is supposed to look like and the early warning signs and all that. And it becomes, right. and, go ahead. Well, uh, I, I mean, there was a media narrative with Columbine and, and actually, as it's come out in subsequent years, the narrative of the two what were their names the two shooters um you know the narrative that they were being bullied upon and picked upon and that they got revenge by coming up with this elaborate um shooting and bombing that the bombing of course didn't happen because they uh, the, the plan was to bomb the the uh both the uh the cafeteria and uh, then when everyone rushed out into the uh, parking lot, they were going to bomb the parking lot as well. And right. of course the bombs didn't go oh, yeah. off. And so it, you know, the plan sort of fell apart. So they ended up doing this walk through the school and just sort of shooting at people on this very bizarre, you know, almost surreal kind of events that happened. And, um, you know, the narrative was that they were picked on and that they were bullied. And then as it turned out, you know, as people began to do research into it, in fact, there was an excellent book that came out years later called yeah. Columbine. And it was written by a man named Dave Cullen, who's an, an amazing journalist. And he also he did, did a book on, uh, on the more recent one, the, uh, I'm spacing on the name, but the, the one that... Parkland. Was, Parkland, yeah. Yeah. Yes. Yeah. So as it turned out, years, you know, as he began to delve into this, 
he began to realize that that narrative was false as well, and that, in fact, the two uh, shooters uh, were themselves bullies. Yeah. Uh, and uh, so it's interesting how, you know, um, that in itself, how Gerber is using the media narrative to, you know, as the basis for this story, this fictional story. But as it turned out, <laughs> he was almost like prescient enough to realize, and maybe that's his understanding of human nature, that uh, generally people who are bullied or picked upon and who don't have violent tendencies aren't the sort of people who are necessarily going to, you know, blow up a school or walk into a school and start just shooting people at random. You know, it does happen, but uh, Ethan Harrow, for example, is, you know, he is somebody who's very poor control of his emotions. Whatever the reasons are for his acting out, uh, Gerber does portray him as being subsequent to that when he's in prison. He does portray him as being, you know, quick to act and a vengeful and, you know, um, hot tempered. Uh, Hot-tempered, right, individual. Well, he said so, the same thing about his friend, like, too, because he said that the reason why things always escalated was because his friend had this, like, rage and would lash out, which would just make the whole situation right. worse. Which would make the situation worse, right. Yeah, I so could was almost like it Gerber was almost, it, right? It was almost like Gerber was able to see through the media narrative, <laughs> which, you know, only sort of, like, I don't know, it just speaks to his ability to, you know his understanding of human nature was was it, it was very nuanced well like and Columbine didn't also like Columbine if I remember correctly it, it turned out that it was basically over like a situation with like a like a spurned crush right like with a one of them was mad because a girl wouldn't go out with him or dumped him or something like that or am I confusing my school shootings <laughs> <laughs> I, I don't think that that was part of it. No, I don't recall that. I, I do. I do know that there was some. Um, there was quite a bit of the, the two of them had quite a bit of uh, disliking for uh, people in general. Right. Yeah. Uh, they were they were what you would call sociopaths. <laughs> and, and one of them, uh, they just thought that they were better than everybody. What's that? I said, and one of them didn't he have like a history of abuse as well? Yes. Yeah. So, you know, I mean, there's if if, I, if anybody's listening to this podcast, I highly recommend you go out and read uh, Dave Cullen's book, Columbine. It's an absolutely fascinating book. And, and it, read it in tandem with uh, Gerber's Hard Time, because I uh, honestly, the two really do have quite a bit of uh, correlations in how uh, uh, the main character, Ethan Harrow, is portrayed and his psychology and the psychology of the Columbine shooters. There's actually quite a few uh, similarities. And I, I think it would, I, my reading Columbine by Dave Cullen, and I read it years after I read Hard Time. And as I was reading it, I was thinking of Ethan Harrow. I mean, some of the, uh, the how Ethan Harrow is betrayed by Gerber, as I said, it's just, there's so many uh, echoes of it in, in Columbine. Yeah, Gerber's understanding of angry young men in particular is pretty incredible because we got into that before with Fool Killer. Yeah, yeah. yeah. I just want to say as an aside with Fool Killer, it occurred to me 
later, and I don't know why this never occurred to me before, but we speak of angry young men. And uh, the second fool killer, Greg Salinger, who's the sort of the initiatory person and fool killer who through the conversations that he has with the third fool killer uh, more or less coaxes him into becoming this, you know, uh, force of, to uh, fight against crime and rid the world of fools. And um, I noticed that uh, Greg Salinger, the name Salinger, uh, I was, I began to think of J.D. Salinger yes, wrote right. Catcher in the Rye. Yeah, right. And Catcher in the Rye was the text that supposedly inspired, um, I, now I forget his name. Hinckley. John David Hinckley, Hinckley. yeah. Was it Hinckley who shot John Lennon? Yeah. Right, oh, outside no. the Dakota Hotel in New York City. And and I know that Salinger, the character named Salinger, was introduced before that happened because that happened in the... Uh, John Lennon was shot in what, 1980? 1980, and that was Chapman, but both Chapman and Hinckley were obsessed Chapman. with the right. That's right, yeah. Right. Hinckley shot... Mark Chapman. Right. Hinckley shot Reagan, right. Yeah. Thank you. They yeah, thank you. Mark Chapman. Right. Reason. They were both obsessed with that book. Yeah. Okay, so... Right. So I can't... I, I'm, I'm sure that part of the inspiration for that Fool Kill uh, series that we spoke about uh, in the previous episode, I'm sure that Gerber was thinking of J.D. Salinger's Catcher in the Rye inspiring Mark Chapman to shoot John Lennon and inspiring Hinckley to shoot uh, President Reagan. Because, I mean, that's essentially what's going on in that Fool Killer series. <laughs> right. Yeah, it was very, very bizarre. Well, on the angry young men thing, should we transition over to the uh, last son of Earth? Yeah. Well, so one thing that's maybe a transitional point here. Um, Hard Time, I think, is his best written book. And it really is a book that just feels like the professionalism Gerber brought to it came from years of writing comic books and other, other media also. It really was the probably the work of his that most felt like he had a full series Bible and had worked out how he wanted to let to, to tell the story of his characters and um, produce something that really unfolded itself over time. I guess Bull Killer is the closest uh, approximation of that, closest comparison to that. Well, and they're both like kind of seem like they come from his TV writing background, which also that brings up one thing I wanted to ask the two of you about. So why was Mary Skinez not allowed to be credited for the first season of Hard Time? It said it was like a contractual thing, but I was really curious about that. And if you, if I you knew anything about it. Yeah, I have the manuscript up now. I was just curious about that, too. Um, he is he is credited uh, for working with Skinez. Um, in articles of the time. Yeah, because he he went and told everyone that like she had co-written it with him from the start, but it said that DC, for contractual reasons, refused to let her be credited for the first season. 
and I was just <laughs> I was just trying to figure out why that would be. It was just such a bizarre, like odd thing to me. But I saw too that she's like an intensely private person and has never really like talked about any of this. So there, I couldn't find anything from her. Yeah, no, I I don't know what the answer is to that. Uh, the closest thing we have is, by the way, those of you who remember Omega the Unknown will find it interesting that Mary Screen is my good friend and the co-creator of that book has been lending a behind-the-scenes hand on hard times. James Michael and Ethan Harrow are very different from being two versions of the same character, but you may find they share a literary chromosome or two in common. Unless it was, like, by her request, um, but... I, I just thought that was really interesting. I, and Gerber at one point apparently even said that he would probably get in trouble with her for even mentioning her at all. So maybe she just didn't want the attention from the book or was like worried about the reaction at the beginning or something. Possibly. Do you remember anything else about that? I'm searching my memory and I honestly, I don't recall any discussion of it. The interviews that I read. And, and it seems like Gerber was always, like, extremely open to giving people credit. Yeah, that's why I, I wasn't sure if it was coming from, like, the DC side or if it was coming from him. All I know is that when you when you look at the, uh, the Wikipedia for, for Hard Time, it brings that up. Well, we could ask her. I mean, she's on the same server memorial site on Facebook. Yeah, yeah. I'm friends with her. Interact. Yeah, yeah, I'd love to have her on and have her talk about her work. Um, if you wanted to transition over to the last son of Earth. And well, last may I just may I just before we transition uh, yeah. the season two, the season two of Hard Time. Uh, you know, it's interesting you mentioned the how how the storyline is constructed and how it's reminiscent of television. And it's right there in the title, season one and season two, or the mm -hmm. subtitle, I should say. Right. Uh, but one of the things that he does in season two, which was truncated because it was canceled, is in that last issue, issue seven, which is an amazing uh, issue. It's one of the best comics that you can read. Uh, what he does is he flashes forward, uh, which was a a trope becomes a common in television now when a series is unexpectedly uh, canceled. Uh, Sweden series. Uh, now I can't think of the title. <laughs> oh, Firefly. Um, no, wasn't Fire? Wasn't Firefly? Have a very good concluding episode, but they had to wrap that up in a motion picture. Uh, there was a series right. that he did subsequent to that. And I can't oh, Dollhouse. The title now it was about Dollhouse. Thank you very much. Dollhouse. Uh, I don't know if either of you have seen Dollhouse, but yeah. there were two seasons, and the season wrap-up was a flash forward, much like this, uh, what Gerber did with Hard Time. I mean, it's incredibly similar, and it's become kind of a convention now in television to do that. Uh, if the creators know that They've got so many episodes that they're going to be able to do, and it's not going to be renewed ahead of time. Um, this is sort of a wrapping up method, and Gerber did it. It, it I think he's maybe one of the first to do it um, that I can think of. 
so that may be an example of where hard time has influenced the greater culture <laughs> in a subtle way. But it's an amazing uh, issue. It's really uh, essentially it jumps ahead, I think, uh, to the end of his sentence where he's being um, considered for parole or being allowed out of prison. And later, uh, he served his full sentence. And it ends right. in one of the great comic mysteries. So he's released from the prison. Uh, Someone comes right. floating past in a limousine. And a floating limousine. Right. He says they say hey to each other and he floats away. We never see who that person is. Right. Who do you think that person I, is? <laughs> who knows? Because he, he does. So my my thought was. Um, so I, the, maybe the most elegant part of, of the last issue is what happens to Cindy in the end. This is spoilers right. now for a 15 year old comic book. Uh, but she <laughs> saved up and got her sexual reassignment surgery. She even married a guy who knew about her past and adored her till the day he died. They didn't have children. Um, they let her out in 2011 and, work, and she went to work in a salon. She travels for a transgender pushing 70. She's a babe. So I always read it as Cindy coming and picking him up and them having new adventures. But I don't know if that's a good reading or not. I mean, that's better than any theory I've got, so. <laughs> right. Well, I just didn't, I, I didn't want to let it go without mentioning that last issue because it really is uh, worth mentioning. It's really a great wrap-up to the series. Yeah. Unfortunately, the the season two, yeah. And, and unfortunately, season two has never been collected. They collected the first season in two paperbacks. Um, but this is a series that really is crying out for a, like an absolute edition with the entire, you know, season one and season two between two covers. It would just be, I think, a great, a great comic uh, to get back out and available to readers. And who knows, maybe someone will come along and see the potential and we'll have a hard time TV series. Actually, I had, I got it custom bound. I have my you own omnibus really, really edition. If you guys were on video, you could see it. You know what's really weird is oh, it, oh, I don't okay. think it's even up on on DC Universe. Like it, they have the first season on there, but they don't have the uh, the second. No. Yeah, it's, it's very really unfortunate. Well, the second season has that great arc with the with Cutter. You know that character that really just compelling, very sadistic uh, character who's just frightening. <laughs> I mean, I don't uh, really understand why they wouldn't have the second even up digitally. That's just bizarre to me. Yeah. It's not any extra effort for them to wrap up the story. Yeah, I don't know. Because I, I have, because I, I was just thinking about it when you said that, that it had been collected. And I was like, oh, I wonder if it's on DC Universe. And it's like, no, it's not even on there for no discernible reason. <laughs> But highly recommend yeah, really you look for it on eBay or my comic shop or whatever. It is... Yeah, you can find it in single issues pretty easily. Yeah. Yeah, it's not hard to, to get a hold of. It's just un just unfortunate because, you know, I mean, so much so much of availability is through the bookstores now, and it's just out of print. 
can't get it. Yeah. So let's speaking of another to, comic uh, that speak, and and I can segue now because uh, <laughs> the uh, <laughs> the Superman, uh, the two Superman miniseries, Elseworlds miniseries, we're about to talk about are also <laughs> out of print and have never been collected, <laughs> unfortunately. And are also not on DC Universe, um, and also have some pretty <laughs> significant time jumps. Yes, right. So uh, this, these were the Elseworlds uh, comics. Elseworlds, of course, started with Batman Gotham by Gaslight many years ago, and uh, wasn't technically an Elseworlds comic, but it was sort of the the trendsetter. The, the it was an extremely popular, you know, comic, and. Uh, so there was sort of like an unofficial Elseworlds imprint for many years, I believe. And eventually it did actually get its own imprint. And uh, Andy Helfer, uh, name keeps coming up. He was the one who asked Gerber to uh, do the focus uh, hard time and asked him to come back and do these two Elseworlds stories. So yeah. What- so first of all, Last Stand on Krypton is illustrated by Doug Wheatley. I think the art is gorgeous. Yeah, and he's uh, also Wheatley, he's yeah, best Doug Wheatley, the uh, one who did Fire and Blood for George R. R. Martin. Oh, okay. That's right. Yes. And Doug Wheatley, of course, did the uh, those wonderful what was it Johnny Quest? No, that's Mark Mark Wheatley. That was Mark Wheatley. Okay. Mark Hempel and Mark Wheatley. Okay, I'm so sorry. Yeah, Doug Wheatley. What else does, has he done? Uh, his artwork is amazing. Well, so he's best known for, like, Star Wars stuff at Dark Horse, like, other than the Fire and Blood thing. Um, and then he's done some other licensed things. I think he's pretty much moved out of, like, regular comics and only does, like, big book gigs now. But the Star Wars stuff is probably... If you're thinking of his other things, that would be probably what would be coming up. So, Morgan, you you uh, sound like you really want to jump into this. So, uh, go ahead. Well, uh, so I was just curious because this is this the only Superman thing that that Gerber did. We did Phantom Zone with Gene Colan in uh, about 1980. Okay, I don't think I ever read that one. I I gotta say it was kind of weird to see Gerber doing Superman, and I know it's it has Superman in the title, but it, it feels like his take on this type of Superman is way more kind of like a cross between like Martian Manhunter and Hal Jordan. He he doesn't really feel like a, a Clark Kent to me, and I was just wondering if the if the two of you got got that sense because he's he's kind of arrogant and he's very analytical and he doesn't really have and i know that part of that's because you know he's raised on krypton as the last son of earth instead of the other way around but um i don't know it felt odd something about it was off to me yeah i felt that way too and like i wanted to be more compelling and it never ended up kind of becoming more than just this interesting kind of sidelight. Now, I like that it didn't feel like a lot of those other Elseworlds books that's all gimmick and no heart. 
yeah there was there's real heart and it feels like there's this intriguing kind of feel to it but at the same time it's just missing something somehow that would make it great and i had trouble putting my fingers on it more than that sorry go ahead Oh, I was saying there's none of the Gerber like zaniness to it. Mm-hmm. Like, uh, I, I guess for me, like, because I'd never read this one until you put it on the list. Like, based on like the cover art and everything, I was like, oh, this is cool. It's going to be like him going on more like galactic adventures because he's on Krypton, which is like far more advanced, and there's going to be more going on. But um, the Krypton on this kind of feels like it's at the end of its timeline too which it is in a way because of the the weird um brainiac-esque device that has been planted in the center of krypton um but it just feels like it it doesn't really it, it spends so much time just like making it clear that he's like other and i always thought for me the appeal of like superman is that like it doesn't really matter that he's from somewhere else because he he has been able to develop as like the best possible notion of what like humanity is supposed to be and in this it kind of felt weird because he doesn't feel like the best possible version of what krypton is supposed to be he just kind of seems this like this even even though he's supposed to seem not as cold as the true kryptonians he still just feels very cold and aloof to me Mm-hmm. We just never quite feel like we we can kind of appreciate him as a person. Yeah, I he's like the I the only character that I really like liked in that was uh Lara. She was the only one who felt like a real character. Everyone else was just kind of like stunted. <laughs> Lara at least had like there was complexity to her because she's trying to abide by Kryptonian society, but she's also very curious in her own way and starts to kind of like warm up and become more open. And we're told that it's because of uh, Jor-El, but it's not really because they you hardly ever see them interact or like do anything. If you look at the way Wheatley draws her, especially in uh, Last Son of Earth Part One. There's a lot of focus on her eyes. You can yeah. really read her emotions on her face. Um, whereas Jarrell's always looking away. She's always expressing herself on her face. It just seemed and, like Gerber did not like any of these characters. I didn't get the feeling from it like I do with his other work that he actually really liked what he was writing. This seemed like kind of a his heart wasn't in it. It's strange, too, because Superman is Gerber's favorite, professed favorite character. And, of course, he used the Superman mythos to such great effect in Phantom Zone, you know, what, 18 years before this. Well, yeah, and Omega's a satire of of the Superman mythos. Yeah. Uh, It's a great premise, I have to say. Um, You know, just uh, in print, I mean, it sounds great. But I agree with you that the that the, uh, the actual um, comic itself doesn't—it really doesn't pay off. Uh, it doesn't really go anywhere with the premise. 
that it could go. Uh, I think some of that may have been intentional because of the theme throughout the comic of a society that is essentially, you know, st- uh, stagnant. Yeah. Uh, and, you know, that there's this authoritarian sort of clampdown on, 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 uh, people's lives. And I think that, so some of that flatness of, or of, you know, flatness of effect that you have with the characters illustrative of that, you know, sense of lack of personal freedom or enjoyment or whatever, you know, I'm, and, and while it's, it's great in theory in execution, it's kind of like, well, okay, but you still have to have characters. You still have to have someone to root for. You still have to have a character that the reader is going to bet in emotionally, but if everybody's sort of emotionally vacant, you know, what are we supposed to do with them? There's no, there's no entry point for the reader. So it, it almost becomes like an essay. So let's move, let's move to the next book then, because uh, <laughs> uh, only because we're under a little bit of a time constraint. And go to a book comic that's, I think, the opposite of Last Son of Earth. Gerber's um, <laughs> 2002 uh, Howard the Duck, which is just kind of deliriously fun and wild. Um, I was trying to think of the best comparison I can think of for this comic. And strangely, um, I, it's to me, it's an over-the-top musical. It's Moulin Rouge, which came out around the same time, for like a Bollywood musical. It's just big and wild and silly and um, darkly, darkly satirical, which I suppose means it's not like a Bollywood musical. Um, and I think kind of just there's a, just elements of brilliance throughout the story. I'm curious what you guys think of it. It definitely feels like Gerber going for broke. Like it feels like there's like so many <laughs> things there. I also. I feel like there's a bit of vengeance here in terms of like he lost control of this character and with so much of the focus of the series being on like Howard the Duck getting morphed into other things, it kind of feels like a way of like striking back at that of like, oh, you want me to do Howard the Duck again? Like, well, he's not actually going to be Howard the Duck. He's going to be Howard the Largemouth Basilope or, you know. Yeah, like the cover of the first issue where he's a, he's in the mouse's body. And like, it's so brilliant. Well, and then all the yeah, parody stuff like, goes on. Like with the Witchblade it's stuff? Almost like, yeah, or Constantine. Yeah. <laughs> it, it, it's almost like Gerber playing against convention where the convention is playing against convention. And it was it's reminiscent in a way of his 70s stuff where i think nick you made the point excellent point about gerber's 70s material being throwing things against the wall to see you know what will stick and that that doesn't always translate while that experimentalism is adventurous and that adventurousness can be a compelling reading uh, experience on its own, it doesn't always translate to the most coherent narrative. 
And I think that's what we have here. And this, to me, Howard Duck, this Mac series, is part-time represents everything. This series represents my love Kerber. <laughs> I really think it was a not a not an, a very successful series. I, I the humor is a little too forced. I didn't really find any of it compelling. Uh, the, the satire is fine. It's it's dated five minutes before it came out. Um, you know, it's like the the comic book equivalent of Rolling Stones. They can't match these requests. Yes. And uh, yeah. and and the first I don't know three or four issues are are good. Um, Oh, I think we lost Eric. Eric's. Did we totally lose Eric now? Not like permanently lost, but just like a. It was. Where did it drop off? Okay, you're back now. Where did I drop off? Uh, you were saying you liked the first issue. You kind of liked the first four issues, I guess. Four issues, I thought were were strong. They're they're basically good, decent Gerber comics. Uh, the, the the whole uh, Beverly sort of subplot with Dr. Bong and the boy bands being manufactured tubes for, uh, you know, businessmen, I guess. Uh, that was fun. But then it, something along the line, they get out of their uh, home that they're living in in the trash dump and the apartment complex where everybody's living out there, these fantasies. And it just becomes a mess. And, and the whole plot with the play bands and Dr. Vaughn completely forgotten. Uh, it just doesn't seem to go anywhere. And then there's this terrible wrap-up with the conversation with God, and it's just uh, it, it's Gerber without the fun. It, it's it's almost like a self uh, 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 parody. And I, I really I remember reading the Howard the Duck when it came out and sort of being thinking it was fun and 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 uh, you know and and enjoying it and then revisiting it this time for the for this podcast I was just like uh I uh, this is not good this is good. So you felt Not the whole person. sequence with the with God was a little strained, a little literally the Deus says ex machina. <laughs> yeah, it, it just it, it it's the shaggy dog end of a shaggy dog. And uh it just didn't coalesce me and, and you know that's it just wasn't to my What's awfully on the nose, I'll, I'll say that for sure. Um, you know, when when God literally says that, um, when uh, Howard asks, uh, asks God, uh, which version, if any, is true? Old Testament, New Testament, the Quran, the Badas, the one in my world where Moses Moose led the Hebrews out of Egypt and Yeshua the flying squirrel was your only son. How do I put this gently, God says. They're all bunk, even as historical fiction episodes of Bonanza that come closer to the truth. Yeah, that is awfully uh, transparent, I guess. 
is Gerber kind of showing his preaching atheism, so to speak? Yeah, I think if I was younger and I was less worldly, that that would be a really mind-blowing sequence. But <laughs> I, it it just doesn't. It's not convincing to me anymore. I I think the Max series. Um, and I think some of it was trying to reclaim the Howard character and uh, do Howard the way that he always wanted to do Howard, uh, which was without any book for adults and too far. Um, you know, sometimes editorial, you know, uh, restrictions can be can result in improvements in the storyline i definitely could have used a better editor i think (laughs) yeah yeah Uh, you know a a lot of the max comics were like this i mean i think what wasn't there a nick fury comic where he was getting strangled with his own entrails or something like that yeah. I mean, there was, it was just, there was a lot of it was just doing it for doing its sake. That it was the adult line, and it was just, that was the draw for them was to take some of their B list characters and do these comics that where, you know, anything goes. And sometimes it was successful. I mean, there was, there was some good stuff that came out of the Max line, you know, like, um, oh, uh, I mean, I, I think, like, Apache Skies was interesting. The, the Haunt of Fort. Well, yeah, and the alias What's stuff. That? Alias. The alias, yeah. With the, that was Bendis, right? Yeah. So, you know, I mean, there was some really good stuff that came out of it. And then there was a lot of stuff that just was, you know. Um, the Ennis Punisher Mac stuff was pretty good, too. But that at least, like, made thematic sense, and it seemed like it was pretty focused. Yeah, and that ran. Didn't that run for quite a while? I mean, I mean, it's technically still going on because uh, <laughs> right. It's just did that new one that was Punisher Soviet. Right. So yeah, like especially the Vertigo issue of of Howard just feels a little overcooked, little, and the Witchblade issue too. I guess they just feel like a little old school in a way. I just liked. The uninhibited feel of the series, the fact that he was clearly having fun at the time. Um, yeah, he had Gerber had a tremendous amount of freedom. Not all of it works out the way he wants it to, but in a way that also feels very kind of classic Gerber to me. So I guess I liked it better than the two of you do. I like the spectacle of it. I love some of the well, jokes, like yeah. how um, like the Witchblade analogs. Um, boobs get bigger when her weapon gets larger. I just think that's just a cute little twist. <laughs> yeah. Listen, I'm I'm not saying that there are there's not a few good one-liners in there. <laughs> uh, there's definitely moments, and 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 as I said, it is reminiscent of the '70s stuff in the sense that it's everything, including the kitchen sink, and some of it really works and is great. Uh, but overall, as a story, it just didn't just didn't come together for me. And, yeah, I, I would agree and, with that. Uh, 
Like so I, let's I, wrap up our three-part series on three, four. I can't remember now. Our our series on Steve Gerber. Let's talk about. Let, let's do just a little roundtable. What are if you can only read three works by Gerber, what would they be? From this batch or just like in, in general? In, in, over his entire career. What would you recommend to someone who has heard this series and says, I want to read something by him. I only have a certain amount of time. What should I read? Oh, that's tough. Um, Three? Wow. <laughs> <laughs> uh, I guess for me, I would, I would put... God, that's that's a really tough question. <laughs> uh, Everyone's got to start with something, right? So, what do you start? I feel like I would go with with his man thing, and then full killer, and then hard time. Just because I feel like those are the most consistent, while still giving like a pretty good overview of his strengths like i would i would love to put omega the unknown on there but omega gets kind of botched by what's yeah. happening to him and howard the duck i just don't even know because like some issues of howard are so great and then some are so <laughs> impenetrable right. i feel like it'd be hard to like just like i could recommend like maybe specific howard stories but i think for like in terms of like actual here's a collection to read or an arc those are the three i would go with Eric? I, yeah, well, he, Nick makes an excellent point about coherence and introducing a new reader. If, But wasn't the original question what you personally would read? Is that what the question was, Jason? If there was only what three. You, what would you recommend? <laughs> oh, it, it is recommend. Okay. Yeah. Yeah. I, a new I, reader. I, I would a new be hard. Reader. Yeah. Okay. Uh, I would recommend, I, I, well, I feel compelled to recommend something that Nick didn't recommend <laughs> <laughs> and sort of uh, break the rules a little bit. Uh, I, I would recommend Phantom Zone. Yeah, I need to sure. read that one now because I have not, I, I wasn't even aware of it. It's pretty wonderful. I would. It's wonderful. Yeah, I would recommend Phantom Zone. Um, I, I, I won't recommend, I'll recommend what I think would be probably the easiest to get a hold of. So Phantazone, I believe still in print. Unfortunately, Fool Killer hasn't been collected in its, and, uh, Hard Time hasn't been collected in its entirety. Uh, so please maybe shopping on Amazon and wants to pick up something that's in print. I would say Phantom Zone. I would say Man-Thing, which is now in print in the Essential series. And a third one. Oh. It's true that Omega is compromised incredibly, and it is a great series. It's very interesting. Uh, Omega is like my favorite of his concepts in general and i i just yeah. really think that he'd been able to like do that the way that he wanted it to do and for it to go the way that it was supposed to have gone yeah well Omega? I, I, yeah I, I i would choose him yeah i mean for i think is that in print is, is 
still get that, right? I think so. Yeah, yeah it is. Yep. I think it's also okay. in the yeah. I would say I would say Man Thing Omega and and Phantom Zone. Those three. Okay. Um, so I'm not going to choose Omega, regrettably, <laughs> because I think it's just a little hard to kind of rock the whole approach if you don't have the sure. right mindset for the 70s. I think in a lot of ways it feels a little dated. So I would choose yeah. my number one choice to recommend of Gerber Comics would be Nevada. Oh, good choice. Oh. Which is in print. It has a <laughs> wonderful storyline, a compelling lead character, a lot of Gerber weirdness, but it feels pretty satisfying. The only thing is there really needed to be a second mini and yeah. more work along those lines. That's an excellent choice, though. That's a good, good, good call there. Yeah, I will. In fact, I will. I will <laughs> Omega recommendation and replace it with Nevada. <laughs> um, second, I choose Hard Time. Um, it's a little uncompromising, um, and you'll have to work hard to get volume two. But I think, in terms of ambition and thoughtfulness, I, it's one of his most unique works. And then I got to go with Fool Killer because I think Fool Killer is just such a upsetting, fascinating, deeply intriguing story that really resonates with our current day and you know, the, the world we live in. You'll be thinking of QAnon all throughout the book. That's the thing for me is that that, that has strangely become his most relevant comic, which is yeah. depressing. So but um, And it also still has humor in it. Like there's a lot of, I mean, it's very dark humor, but there's... Um, I was surprised you wouldn't go with the Defenders one, though, Jason. I I, I thought for sure you were going to pick. I was really <laughs> tempted to go with that. Um, but I, I'm not sure if it would be too weird for some people. And I'm not yeah. sure if some of the elements of it just wouldn't hit the same way that they would be. Actually, if I was to go with Defenders, I would choose the first half of his Defenders run. The Sons of the Serpent story with the... Uh, the Kyle Richmond's Black Butler running basically a KKK organization. Yeah. Followed by the really satirical uh, Guardians of the Galaxy storyline. Oh, yeah. 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 Those with are good great right. section there about global warming that totally feels resonant. And then uh, <laughs> there is literally a reality uh, show star, essentially, who becomes a prominent villain in the story. Uh, so that's another. That would be another maybe number. That would be maybe my, my number four choice. Solid picks all around, though. I think all of those would be Absolutely. good on. And same, same. By and would, it would build up enough to get them interested in exploring deeper with things like Howard the Duck and some of the zanier things. So I do think it helps to be a little more immersed in his ticks before diving into Howard. Yeah, that's the sure. thing. It's like. Well, yeah, go ahead. Oh, How Howard will always be my favorite Steve Gerber comic. I mean, personally. Yeah. Um, for a lot of different reasons. But I can definitely see, as you said, Nick, it is not the most consistent comic. And some of it is incredibly dated. And you really do have to be in the right mindset for it. And I think understanding Gerber's worldview and his sense of humor and how he handles character and plot structure and all of those things 
having a foundation in that before you dive in would be definitely beneficial to better appreciating the comic. Yeah, agreed. I mean, it's just like with a band, right? Like you don't throw someone into what is your favorite work if it's one that is uh, a little less palatable to those who aren't initiated in it, you know? Because there's like bands where I'm like, this is my favorite album, but you should not start here. Yeah. <laughs> they need that one song that they'll play over and over again and say, oh, what else is there by these guys? Exactly. Right. Yeah, exactly. Right. And yeah. Nevada is in print. I see it on Amazon now. Um, oh, that's so great. I, think I know you have a hard out, so I want to let you get to that. But um, thank you. This has been a lot of fun talking Gerber with you guys. Yeah. Uh, in September, let's try and talk Andy Helfer and maybe we can get him to join us. I would love that because after doing this series with the two of you, I, I realized how many books he like was involved with and I had not thought about it before. And I also think that like the role of an editor in comics is one that doesn't get enough love and it'd be great to like shine a light on one of the, uh, the editors who did the most to kind of like bring up that particular era of comics. And I think it would be a first because from what I am able to surmise, I don't think he's ever given an interview before. Well, perfect. <laughs> so let's make history. He either uh, either he has not been sought out, or he's one of those people just like pensionesque refusal to, you know, engage in that arena. But uh, if we are able to get him to do an interview, I think that would be wonderful. I would definitely yeah. love to interview. Oh, thank you.